Father, as we open our hearts to you this morning, and it is really about the condition of our heart, I pray that your words would penetrate in the innermost part of our being, that you'd speak to us. And Lord, that you would awaken something inside of us, Lord. And if there's areas of discouragement or despair or doubt or shame or brokenness, Lord, if there are things in our lives that you want to cleanse and transform, I pray today that that will happen in such an amazing way. Father, I just pray that uh, depression and doubt would, would dissipate. And I ask, Father, that encouragement, hope, peace, joy, grace, compassion, goodness would just flow into our innermost being. I pray, Father, that, uh, that our service to you, Father, would, as, as it's manifested into the lives of others, would be so beautiful, so gracious, so loving, so understanding, so compassionate that uh, people will know your, your, who you are through our lives. And we just thank you for that. May our service to you be done to please you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it's always interesting to start delving inside of why we do the things we do. What, what motivates people to do uh, some of the things that they're doing. And I, I know that the story I'm going to share is probably in the wrong season of time, and I don't, we're not even thinking about Christmas time. But how many recognize that, um, that so often we get into a kind of a mode when we get towards Christmas? And some of you can, are, are going to start relating to the story that this woman shares with us. She talks about the fact that it was a certain Christmas that everything changed in her family. And it was a small white envelope stuck among the branches of their tree. There was no name, no identification, no inscription, but it had been put there for the last 10 years or so. And it all began because this lady's husband, Mike, hated Christmas. Now, he didn't hate the fact that it celebrated the birth of Christ. What he disliked about it was that it had become so commercial there was so much overspending, so much frantic behavior, so much last-minute antics around the Christmas season, and people just lost a sense of what the season was about. And knowing how strongly he felt about this, his wife decided to bypass all of the normal gifts that her, a wife would normally get her husband, and she was thinking, I want to do something different for Mike that would break through all that he is uptight about. So she said, our son Kevin was at, at school wrestling shortly before Christmas, and there was a kind of a non-league match that was sponsored by an inner-city church. So these, these young people came in, they were just like in rags. I mean, their sneakers looked like they were held together by their shoelaces, and, uh, and they were so much in contrast to the school that my son attended, she said. They had beautiful uniforms, and then she noticed and she was quite alarmed when they started wrestling because none of the kids had headgear. You know, if you ever watch wrestling match, they put headgear on. That's to keep you from getting cauliflower ears. Anyway, they didn't have any of that. She, obviously, that inner city church did not have the resources to provide this kind of stuff. And then she said what really was distressing, and my husband was there watching our son wrestle, that every match these poor kids lost. And, and then they would kind of get up with a false sense of bravado, you know, they're street kids, and they wouldn't acknowledge that they were defeated. And she noticed, she saw her husband, and he was just shaking his head sadly, and he said, I wish just one of them could have won. They have so much potential, but losing like this might take the heart right out of them. And she says, that's when the idea for the present came into my mind. That afternoon, I went to a local sporting goods store, 
And I bought an assortment of wrestling headgear and shoes, and I sent them anonymously to the inner city church. On Christmas Eve, I placed an envelope on the tree, the note inside telling Mike what I had done, and that this was his gift for me to him. And the morning he opened that envelope, she said, I saw the brightest smile come over his face. He was so filled with joy that this actually began a tradition in our family that every year I put an envelope. And she said it became the highlight of our Christmas morning. All the kids would just hardly wait until that envelope was open. I mean, different times I did different things. One year, I sent a group of intellectually challenged youngsters to a hockey game. Another year, you know, two elderly men had lost their home, and she said, I gave money towards that. We always found something to give towards, and it became a great tradition. As time went along, though, uh, there came a, a Christmas, just before Christmas, my husband passed away with cancer. And she said, I, I had just so lost heart, I had a hard time even putting the tree up. You can imagine the grief. But finally, I decided to put the tree up on Christmas Eve, and I put the envelope in there for Mike. And that morning, not only did my children come to the Christmas morning with me, but by this time now, they had wives and children, and there were four envelopes in the tree. And so this tradition expanded so that even the grandchildren were standing around the tree with wide-eyed anticipation, watching as their fathers took down the envelopes. How many know doing a good deed can be tarnished when we discover the motivation for the act? Isn't that true? Giving is one of those things in life that really reveal the condition of a person's heart. We know that that's true. I mean, when somebody does something beautiful for us out of a heart of love, and grace, I mean, you just feel so overwhelmed. But then, you know, sometimes you have people doing things and you're a little concerned about why they're doing it. You've ever had those moments? You know, I, I get the, these phone calls once in a while that you've won something. Anybody ever get those car, phone calls? And I, I always say to them, I said, listen, why don't you just give it to somebody else that really needs it? Because, you see, you have to understand, I know what's coming. They really want to come over and sell me something. You know, it's just kind of their entrance into the thing. So, you know, it kind of loses a little bit, this gift giving, if there's an ulterior motive that's coming with it. How many know what I'm talking about? And so I think what God is trying to show us here on the Sermon on the Mount is that we each have a propensity in our heart that needs to be discovered. And I, I say that because so often uh, sin is such a subtle thing. If I could say it this way, the enemy of our soul is so subtle that the greatest battles are many times fought when we're engaged in spiritual and godly activities. Isn't that the truth? And that's where the real intensity is. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was fasting and praying, that's when he had his greatest temptation. We read about that in Matthew chapter 4, and we read about that in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, and Satan comes to him, and he says, why don't you turn that stone into bread, right? And so Jesus is now tempted because he's doing a spiritual activity. And I find a lot of times in our lives, and it's so frustrating because here we're trying to do a good thing, and yet there's a tremendous battle that comes around trying to do a good thing. And many times people just lose heart and give up, right? And so what we're seeing here in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus really trying to help us understand the condition of our heart. You know, as followers of Christ, you know, our activity needs to bring glory to God. That's really the focus of the Christian life. And yet when we read the New Testament, it's so interesting that sometimes the spiritual activities that Jesus was most upset about were actually good activities done with the wrong motive. 
And one of the groups that was really famous for this was a group called the Pharisees. Now, if we've been in the church for a long time, we've already painted the Pharisees with a black brush, haven't we not? They're kind of the bad guys in the story. But the reality is there's actually some good Pharisees in the Bible. Anybody know that? Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so sometimes we just paint everybody with the same brush, and we have to be careful we do that. But when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, what you and I probably don't understand is if that we were taken in a time capsule back to the first century, they would be the church, the, the actual the superstars in the church. Because these are the people, the Pharisees, the party actually meant the people who were separating themselves. And they were concerned about the lack of holiness, the lack of purity in the nation at that time. So they were not perceived in their minds as being the bad guys. They saw themselves as being the good guys. And yet, what happens sometimes is when we're walking with God and serving God, our service can easily degenerate into a form or an outward expression that we look like we're doing the right thing, but eventually our hearts start drifting away from God. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 15. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they're saying all the right things, they're doing all the right things, but the place of where their true essence is, the condition of their soul. See, remember, I want to remind us, the heart in the Bible is not what you and I think. It's not dealing with the, the thing that's pumping blood, okay? It's a metaphor speaking of our soul. The, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew mindset it's a very concrete language, and they use metaphors. So the heart is actually dealing with our intellects, emotion, and our will. It's not just our emotions, folks, when we're talking about the heart. It's, not, you know, it's actually including our mind. It's including our decision-making. It's actually the essence of who we are. It's our internal life. It's, I would say it's our soul, our personality. So in the Hebrew thinking, when we're talking about the heart, it's talking about the essence of who we are. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are outwardly conforming, but inwardly you're drifting. And I've noticed this over the years, and I've been a Christian a long time. It's so easy to actually be in the pew, being a Christian, doing and saying the right things, and yet we're moving away from God. We're actually experiencing a thing called drift. And that's why the book of Hebrews warns against drifting from God. How many recognize that you don't start backsliding once you left the church? It actually happens while we're sitting in the pew. Isn't that an amazing thought? That this morning... We could be thinking we're in a spot, but the reality is we're not quite where we think we are. We've actually drifted. And the only way we discover that we've drifted is usually a crisis comes into our life and we realize we're not where we thought we were. How many of you have ever had that experience where you've been challenged or you've gone through a difficult moment and you haven't responded in a way that you realized later was the right response. Anybody ever gone through that? See, I got my hand up. I have to be honest. That can happen to any one of us that we don't always behave or respond in the right way to a situation, right? Let's, let's try to be honest about it. But you see, we assume that we're in a certain place, but then this challenge comes into our lives and we attribute the way we're responding in this negative, maybe not the way Jesus would respond to the fact that we're in this moment and it's a difficult moment, but what the moment is really doing is exposing the true condition of our heart. And that's a little scary sometimes to us. And we can see that that happens. It says, they worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. So these guys now have degenerated 
what they were teaching and believing in to accommodate their lifestyle. And if you don't think this is not happening in our culture today, you're mighty mistaken because, you know, we live in such an affluent and a wonderful time, and yet sometimes we lose sight of a few things that Jesus wants us to understand. And he's going to nail some things here today that are actually what we would call spiritual disciplines, and yet they're being done with the wrong heart. And Jesus is going to expose the inner part of our life. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that you and I really don't fully know our hearts. You see, that's why the psalmist prayed, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. There's parts of us we don't know. And Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who could really know them? You know, there's, there's stuff inside of us. As a matter of fact, the book of Jeremiah, when he was warning about going into captivity, he says a very, very interesting text. If you've never read the book, some of the things he says are going to shock you. Like one of them, he says, you're going to be in a siege, and even the most sensitive woman is going to eat her own child. In other words, the person that you think is the most gracious, quiet, godly person in the right context is going to behave in a terrible way. Isn't that sad? You know, and so sometimes we think, well, I'd never do something like that. But you and I have never been in that context. We've never lived where there's been war. We've never lived in a state of extreme crisis where all of a sudden things are popping out of us. You know, we'd never thought we'd say or do. We were just, we're responding to the moment and things inside of us that have never been addressed are going to pop out of us. And so I'm trying to, you know, bring out this idea that we have to really be careful that there's maybe something in us that may not be what we want to have there, and we're just not even aware of it. That's why I was reading in Proverbs 23 this morning where, where God says, give me your hearts. So there's a challenge in our life to say, okay, God, you know me better than I know me, and I give you my heart because I, you know, I'm not going to even trust myself. See, it's not just about trusting other people. I'm not going to even trust myself. I'm going to trust, entrust myself to you, the God who knows the tomorrow. You're the God who knows me better than I know myself. I'm going to give myself to you. So what is hypocrisy? Because that's what, really what we're exposing. And I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding towards hypocrisy. And I like how Warren Worsby frames it. He says, a hypocrite is not a person who falls short of their high ideals. How many here have ever felt short of something that was an ideal for you and you just didn't quite hit it? Anybody had that experience? Of course, we all do. He says, and who occasionally sin. Now, some of us, maybe we don't think we sin. I don't know. But I know from John that you do. And you know why I know that? Because John says, if we confess our sins. And then he says, if you say you have no sin... The truth is not in you. In other words, we have to be more realistic about ourselves. We're not, we're, listen guys, you look so good on Sunday, but I know that it's not always this way. There are moments in your life where you're not hitting 100%. And you know how I know that? Because I know that about myself. I'm not always batting 1,000. Anybody here willing to admit, I don't always bat 1,000. I don't always hit the ball, the ball out of the baseball park every time I get up. Sometimes I strike out, Right? That's the truth. But then we're, we're commanded, hey, listen, once we become aware of this, we deal with it in our lives. We confess our sins. We don't sit down and wallow in shame and guilt. That's not the way we have to handle life. No, we say, Lord, I need help. I recognize I'm broken and I need help in this area in my lives. 
Okay, then he goes on to say, a hypocrite is a person who deliberately uses religion to cover up their sins and promotes their own agenda, their own gain. In other words, they're, they're hiding behind uh, religion. As a matter of fact, the word hypocrite originally came from the Greek theater. It's the idea of putting a mask on. And I don't know if you did, in the old days, they'd have a little stick and have a mask. And back in those days, there was only drama, you know, sad faces and happy faces, right? Comedy or, or you know, something. And, and then people would put a mask in front and then they would be this character. And unfortunately, sometimes we have developed a mask and we try to portray something about ourselves that may not be the true reality. We're hiding behind a mask. And, uh, and so people do this. And after a while, we're, we're, we're actually trying to manage an image. And what God is really looking for is authenticity. He's looking for sincerity. You know, we may not always be aware of what's in there, but we're not trying. We're trying to be who we really are. And that's what we're looking for, authenticity. And God is looking for that as well. So let's take a look at our text this morning that we find in Matthew chapter 6. And I want to just read a few verses. We're going to look at a couple things really quickly here. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness or your, the way you're going to live rightly or your, the way you're going about living in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, you're not living to impress people. You're not living to please people. And that, that gets harder than we realize. Okay, If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. In other words, if you're doing things to please people and people are pleased by you, that's your reward. Wow, that's what he's saying. But if you're doing things to please God and you do things for people, then that's your reward. God says, I've got something for you. But other people may not thank you for what you just did. You follow the difference? There is a big difference there. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen, and then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, They've received their reward in full. In other words, what he's saying to us is if you're doing things to play to the audience of people, that's your reward. But if you're doing these things so that you want to please God and it's not about what people see or not, then you're going to be rewarded by God. And I'll tell you why uh, we need to understand some stuff. Because sometimes we read the Bible and we get very literalistic. And what I mean by that is in chapter 5, Matthew is telling us you know, you, you need to have be salt and light. And he says, let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And now we read in chapter 6, do everything in secret. We go, wait a minute, Matthew. I'm really getting confused by you. I mean, we're talking one chapter away. No wonder sometimes people say, well, the Bible's kind of contradictory, isn't it, Pastor? I mean, take a look at that. I say, no, that's not the issue. Let me explain the difference. And I like how uh, Robert Muntz says it. He says here, the contexts are different. In Matthew chapter 5, the temptation was to keep one's religious commitments private 
in order to avoid persecution. In other words, they didn't want to let their little light shine because they were afraid if people saw who they really were, they'd be in trouble because of it. While in the second uh, chapter 6, we have this tendency to call attention to our acts of devotion for personal recognition. And that's the problem. So it's our motivation. How many see what he's really getting at here in this chapter is motivation? He's basically saying in chapter 5, listen, you know, yes, do good things. People will see them, and what you're trying to do is help people realize why you're doing it is to please God and help people. But in chapter 6, you're not doing it for personal recognition. That's not what's motivating you. As a matter of fact, I think it's hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share how hard it is. We're all tempted to please people. You may not think that right now, but by the time I'm done this sermon, you're going to see how hard it is because we all want people to like us. There's not one person in this room that doesn't want a friend. Isn't that true? We all want people to like us. So sometimes we do things so people will like us. What I'm trying to get at is what we need to be doing is things so God will be happy with us, and sometimes people will like us, and sometimes people will hate us. And that's a lot scarier, isn't it? Because we're really living to please God, not people. And the moment you start to do that, you're going to get mixed results. And you can't control those results. So let's take a look at these three areas of piety. First of all, giving to the needy. You know, I've already talked a little bit about giving last week, and I talked about giving to the needy. And Jesus is focusing in on this because he's not talking about our support for the temple here. He's not talking about the support for the local church. He's talking about our, our need to minister to those that are in you know, needs in their lives. It's for the poor. Now, you have to understand, in Canada, the government has a lot of social programs to help needy people. Isn't that true? And, and we're thankful for that. But there's still people that fall through the cracks. We get all of that. But in the Jewish time, when we go back in the first century... They didn't have that social system. And so uh, R.T. France, a New Testament scholar, says almsgiving was actually a religious duty, not a philanthropic option. In other words, this wasn't given out of a generous heart. This is what something they were required to do. The law said you need to take care of the needy. And when you read the Old Testament, how many notice God's really concerned about the needy and the poor? He says a lot about that. In Judaism, and by, and by the first century AD, poor relief based on such almsgiving was really well organized, okay? You, you, you just let a few administrators get in there. They'll organize this for you, Pastor. I, I know, they'll do that. That's great. But Jesus says, and, and Jesus does expect his disciples to be generous, but not necessarily conspicuous. In other words, we're not all gonna have plaques for the great donations we're making, you know? What's motivating us? See, that's the question. So notice Jesus says, when you give alms, not if you'll do it. So Jesus expects us to care for the needy. That's an expectation he has on, on behalf of his followers. So he's not teaching us not to give, but rather how we go about doing it. And it should be for the glory of God. Now, I'm going to just jump a bunch of places here. <laughs> See how far down did I go? Yeah, I think a little further. Yeah, okay. Okay, let's go right to here. Martin Luther, many of us know who he is. He's a great reformer. He said some really interesting things. I like what he says here concerning giving to the poor. He said... The well-off and the secure have too often become indifferent and oblivious to the poverty and the deprivation in their midst. And it is true. A lot of times we don't even notice the poor. 
A lot of times we just ignore them and we don't see them. We become people blind. We do. We just don't, we don't notice it. You know, I was driving my vehicle to work today really early this morning. I saw a guy pulling a wagon. I knew it was a homeless person. He was, he was not in the normal location where you find homeless people in Red Dead, but I noticed him. And I just said, you see, these people, sometimes they just get way past the radar screen. Now, some of you are really mercy givers, so you would, you would notice this. But I, I just happened to notice him. I went, wow, this is powerful. He's, he's, he's not where he normally would see a homeless person. You know, the poor have been shut out of our minds and driven from the mainstream of our societies because we've allowed them to become invisible. We don't want to have to deal with this stuff. And so sometimes as Canadians, we think we're really generous, but reality is we just want to defer it off to somebody else. I think there's something profound about connecting with somebody. Can I, can I just make, this is a, I didn't even say this in the first service, but I'll share this. You know, we used to do a thing called the in from the cold. And then they were, there was a division in the ministerial. You guys don't know about all this, but I do. I was opposed to giving it to the government. I was opposed to it. A lot of them were for it. Because what I saw is they wanted to say they're going to get more help. I said, no, they're going to get less help. Yes, they're going to get more money, but they're going to get less help. Because you see, the moment the government steps in, it has a big string attached to it. You can't share anything about Jesus. And what was happening in our church is we'd give them the warehouse, and we would sign up volunteers, and we would spend the night with them. And some of the people here were so generous. We had backpacks, socks. And one night I was, I was there, and I was cooking for them in the morning. And I had such a, a deep emotional uh, experience because I was thinking about, as I was fixing breakfast for each one of these people, I was thinking of that proverb, I mean that parable where Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. And so that morning while I was fixing breakfast, I was seeing myself fix breakfast for Jesus. And every person that came to get the breakfast I fixed for them, I was giving it to Jesus. What a beautiful, I felt so rich. I felt the presence of God. I felt like we were loving these people. I felt we were sharing the gospel of God's grace and love to them, but all that got dis, you know, taken away. Can you understand what I'm talking about here? How powerful is this stuff? You see, God wants us to intersect with people. Giving is not about giving somebody 20 bucks and saying, take off, buddy, you're in my life. I don't want to see you. You know, here's the 20 bucks, get lost. You know, what God wants us to do is give our hearts and our lives first. That's true giving. And that's what God is interested in. So, uh, Martin Luther goes on to say, ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of these. And I, I want to just say something about our church family. Maybe some of you are not aware of this, but we have a stream of people coming here every single week. I mean a lot of people during the week. You know why? Because I know that there's not enough food even with the food bank, and so we've actually subsidized, and we actually keep track of who we're giving to, but there's a stream of people come here every week. But you know what I really like about it? One of our staff members meets with them, talks to them about their soul, prays for them before we give them the food. You, did you guys know that? See, I don't think most of you knew that. That, to me, is so powerful, you know? And I think it's important that we have that kind of an attitude. How many know who Abraham Lincoln is? Y'all really know, it's a no-brainer. 16th president of the United States, guy that was in the Civil War. But you know, Lincoln was so shaped by reading the Bible. This is what he, he said. It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow. Wow. Sounds like he reads the Bible, wouldn't you say? 
yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by a history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. How many think this is amazing stuff? You know what he did? On April 30th, 1863, he called his nations to a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. This is what he said. He was speaking to the nation when he, was did, when he did this. And then he was on to say, the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a, a punishment or a discipline inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. In other words, he says, you know what I think God's doing? He's allowing us to experience this conflict to discipline us, to reform us as a people. He says, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. Is that profound? I think it is. But let me just go on to say this. Maybe some of you are aware of this, but the reality is one of the reasons why God, you know, in the Old Testament, it's all about the land. How many picked that up? They go into the land. It's the promised land. But God says, if you don't keep my covenant, I will take you out of the land. And when you read why God took them out of the land, not only were they involved in idolatry, but Ezekiel points out something very powerful in Ezekiel 16. He said, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and, detest and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with it, as you have seen. I mean, that's powerful. What he's saying is when you and I no longer have a compassionate heart to those that are less fortunate than us, we're really in trouble with God. You see, I want to just say this to all of us, including myself. I'm including all of us in this. Everything that God has blessed you with, which is so much compared to the rest of the world, do you realize the reason he's done it is for you to be a blessing to other people. So everything God gives you is to be used by you to be a blessing to others. Isn't that great? How many think it's more blessed to give than to receive? And you know why I believe that that's true? I'll say why. Because how many times have I come to a situation where I didn't have something to give and I wanted to? But when I have something to give, it's so much fun and so meaningful to be able to help somebody who's in the need. Isn't that true? Isn't it great to be able to do that? Isn't it God good that he blesses us so we in turn can be a blessing to others? Well, let me move on to my next point. I'm skipping stuff because I'm running out of time. Uh, the second area of, is the area of prayer. Now, I find it fascinating. He says, when you pray, go into your closet. And these guys were out in the streets letting everybody know how prayerful they were. Now, if you took this literally, see, this is, sometimes we have to watch how we interpret scripture. Then we should never be praying in a church meeting, and we should never have corporate prayer meetings. So obviously the disciples did not understand those words to mean that. Otherwise, the book of Acts, you'd not find so many times of people gathering together for prayer. So what does he really mean by this? He means that we should not be so concerned when we're praying what people think about our prayers. That's what he's talking about. You know, we're not here to impress each other. You know, over the years, I've listened to a lot of bad theology in prayers. 
I have to be honest, I have. And, and you know, it doesn't even faze me because I, I hear the heart of the person praying and I know God's so blessed by it. How many have ever heard, you know, think about it. When you're a little child, sometimes when little kids are communicating to you, sometimes you just get the biggest charge out of it because you get what they're saying, but they're not saying it right. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and you know, you don't walk around going, straighten up, kid. You're not saying this right. No one's going to understand you. No, you get what they're trying to say. Isn't it true? And then you have a little smile on your face. You go, this is so cute. I mean, they're, I know what they're saying, but it's not coming out right. I wonder sometimes when God is in heaven, he's listening to us prayer, praying, and he goes, I get what you're saying. It's not coming out right, but it is cute. You know, I think that's a lot of our praying with God. And so what I'm saying to you is, stop being so self-conscious about your praying. That's all I'm saying to you. Don't worry about what people think about your praying, because you're not praying to them. You're praying to Almighty God. And if he's happy with your prayers, that's all that matters. You see, you see how this plays into the story so that you and I should not be afraid of this. We should just say, okay, God, I'm just going for it. You get my heart. Now, I think I like what D.A. Carson says about prayer and hypocrisy. He says this, we will comprehend Jesus' point better if we ask ourselves these questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when I'm alone with God than I do in public? See, that's the real question. Who am I really trying to impress? That's what he's getting at here. Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? And if the answers are not enthusiastically, yes, we fail the task and fall under Jesus' condemnation. We're hypocrites. In other words, you know, I do better praying in public so people can be impressed with how spiritual I am. When in reality, what should really be happening is public prayers technically should be shorter than private prayers, you know? So we don't have to impress anybody. This is what Jesus is really getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what I'm really asking is something that's coming from within your heart. And you're really, you're really focusing in on bringing glory to me and not concerned about what people are thinking and saying. You know, Real praying has a powerful impact on other people. How I many know that's true? I love the story that Greg Anderson shares in his book, Living Life on Purpose. And he shares the story of a man whose wife had left him. He was completely depressed. He had lost faith in himself. He had lost faith in others. He had even lost faith in God. That's a very terrible state to be in. Can you imagine how down he was? He had found no joy in living. One rainy morning, to top it off, the weather wasn't even cooperating, he goes to a local restaurant, he's sitting there, and nobody's talking to each other. Kind of, must be Canada, right? No one's talking to each other. <laughs> and he's hunched over the counter, and he's stirring his coffee with a spoon, and he looks over, and there's a small booth nearby, and there's a mom with a, her little girl, and they had just been served their food, and the little girl kind of breaks the silence in the whole restaurant, you know, because, of course, she's got no filters, right? But that's good. She says, Mom, why don't we just say our prayers? And the waitress turns around, and she says, Sure, honey, we pray here. Will you say the prayer for all of us? And she turned and looked at the waitress, looks at the rest of the people, and says, Bow your heads, we're going to pray. And surprisingly, everybody bows their heads, and one by one, and the little girl bows her head, folds her hands, says, God is great, God is good, we thank him for our food, amen. You know? And how many know when you pray, it changed the atmosphere? And her prayer changed the whole atmosphere, and people began to talk to each other, 
And the waitress finally said, you know what? We should do this every morning. <laughs> Isn't that true? And all of a sudden, the dejected man's whole frame of mind started to improve. And from that little girl's example, he started to thank God for all he did have. How many know so often what we do focus on is what we don't have? And we get so much in a state of depression and despair and despondency because we're locked into the problems and the difficulties. Am I, am I speaking to the right group here? Is this is this true, you know? And we, you know, and all of a sudden he stopped majoring in all that he didn't have, and he and he actually chose happiness. Listen to me now, happiness is a choice. Did you know that? You see, we think happiness is how I feel. No, no, that's your emotions. But your emotions many times are what dictate your behavior. And so often we let our emotions drive our life. But let me go back to the scripture for a moment. The Bible says, you know, it says, bless the Lord when I feel good. It doesn't say that. Did I misquote that? I did, didn't I? It says, bless the Lord when life is good. I didn't say that either. Bless the Lord when all these good things are happening in my life. No, it doesn't say that either. What does it say? It says, bless the Lord at all times. Yeah, but what happens when I don't feel good, Pastor? Well, it still says to bless the Lord. His praise shall continually be in our, my mouth. You see, what I'm going to suggest to us, and here's an assignment, or if you want, I have a doctorate, I'll give you a prescription, here it comes. You know, I'm writing out your prescription today. Here it comes, are you ready for this? This week, when you are in a, in a foul mood, when you are despairing, when you are discouraged, when you are oppressed, when you are feeling like I can't handle it anymore, I'm going to challenge you right now, just start praising God. And you just keep praising God until that emotional state of heaviness begins to lift. And by the way, it does lift. And I know what happens. You can move from despair and discouragement to joy and encouragement. And the only thing that changed was the fact that you began to praise God. Isn't that amazing? Oh, yeah. Well, let me move to the final area of spiritual piety that Jesus addresses, and that's fasting. And I'm just going to say a couple of remarks here. You know, it's so interesting when people start fasting. You know, we all, we all know the text. You know, don't let me know you're fasting here. You know, don't, don't be like the Pharisees, you know, where they're letting everybody know they're fasting. So you know what we do? So somebody, we go somewhere, and somebody offers us something to eat. You go, no. You're not hungry? No, I'm not hungry. And we do this whole game, you know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Because we don't want to tell them we're fasting. Why don't we just come up front, I'm fasting today. Oh, okay, that's the end of the conversation. But no, we play this thing all the way out. I actually think when you do that, you're actually, you're actually doing the very thing you don't want to do. You're making a big deal of it. Come on, that's the problem, right? Totally the problem. So often we, we just need to act normal. And what Jesus is saying, you know these spiritual di disciplines? Just act normal. This should just be a part of your life. Don't act like this is abnormal. I'm a super saint. Look what I'm doing now, you know. <laughs> really? That's not what we're talking about here. And Carson brings this out. The goal of pleasing the Father then is traded in for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing men. Do you know, it's so strong, we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I living for? And so the goal in life should be, I'm living to bring glory and honor to God. That should be the goal of our lives. And we know that we're living that when we are living to please God and not people. 
And let me tell you, we all have the pressure, you know, we all have pressure, you know, to please people. Isn't that true? Because how many here, you don't want to be friendless? How many here, you, want, you at least want at least one friend? Anybody here want at least one friend? Some, how many want two friends, you know? Can we go three? I mean, some of you saying, I'm on Facebook, Pastor. I have 450 friends, and I get really bugged, you know? Like in Facebook, you have those things called likes, you know? And our whole life is governed on, can people like this? Do they like this? Do they like me? And can I tell you, this is what Jesus is getting at, folks. I'm not telling you to get off Facebook. I'm not saying that. But don't get so hung up on the like button. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Don't get so hung up on that. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you start pleasing God, some people aren't going to like you. Some people may hate you. You say, really? Well, let me try. Here's another test. If you want to try it out. You know, did everybody like Jesus? No. As a matter of fact, I know that not everybody likes Jesus in Red Deer. And if you don't believe me, just go down to Red Deer and say, hey, I really love Jesus. Just start saying to people, you walk, I really love Jesus. You will get a reaction. I guarantee you. Not everybody will say, man, I, me too. High five it. You know, I can guarantee if you walk down the street, you might get a few high fives, but you might get something else. <laughs> just pointing this out. So it... it I'm basically saying this morning is it's not just about, you know, I'm being liked. It's about, God, I'm living for you. And sometimes we just really don't know really where we're at. And I'm going to have a stand as we close this morning. You know, I I come to the Lord this morning. I I love Proverbs 23 because he says, give me your heart. God just says, give me your heart. I say, Lord, I'm going to do that because I don't even know what's in there. You say, really, you don't know, Pastor, what's in your heart? I don't know everything that's in there. That's why the psalmist prays, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Because there's things in our hearts that I'm sure you and I don't even know are there. If we knew they were there, we'd be shocked. If we knew they were there, we'd confess it right now, but we just are ignorant of what's really in there. And all I'm suggesting this morning is we're saying, Lord, You know, I don't want to wait until some situation comes along and I'm not behaving in a way that honors and glorifies you. I don't want that. As a matter of fact, this morning as I was praying for my own soul and the souls of you is just to say, Lord, we want to give our hearts to you because we want to live a life pleasing to you. We want to live a life that will glorify your name. I don't want to be a kid that embarrasses you. I'm your child, Father. I don't want to do something stupid. You know, ever felt, you know, when I was a brand new pastor, I said, God, please, if I'm going to do something to really embarrass you and mess things up, just take me off the planet before I do that. You know, I'm serious. I was, hey, I prayed that with a seriousness. You guys are thinking, I'm just kidding. I wasn't kidding. I'm just going, don't let me do something so stupid that it would somehow ruin things for other people. I don't want to do that. That's not my goal. So how many here are just saying with me, you know, Pastor, I hear what, it's resonating. I get what you're saying. I want to just surrender my heart to Jesus this morning. I want him to clean any garbage that's in there that I'm not even aware of. You know, because I love what the psalmist says. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's Psalm 51. I love those psalms. 
How many here just say, Lord, here's my heart. I'm just gonna give it up to you right here, right now. I'm just surrendering my heart. I give it to you. If there's something inside there that I don't even aware of, I just want you to cleanse it. I wanna have a clean heart. I wanna have a pure heart. I wanna have a right spirit. I wanna do your will. I wanna live to please you, even though I know sometimes it's not gonna make everybody happy. <laughs> give me the courage. I need courage then, Lord. If I'm lacking that, please fill that inside of me, right? So Lord, as we lift our hands to you this morning, as we surrender our hearts to you, Lord, would you come today? We give our hearts to you. We pray that you'd cleanse them. You'd renew them. You'd ref just do a mighty work in our lives, oh God. We know that you want to do this amazing work inside of us. Help us, Lord, today that we put a stake in the ground and say, Lord, I just want to live to please you. I just want to live to bring glory and honor to your name regardless of outcomes. I can't control those things. I know I'm not going to make everybody happy, but what I want to make happy is you. I want to please you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.